Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I, I recognize some faces in the crowd, which is wonderful. Uh, I, uh, I always enjoy coming to England and to Oxford because uh, the debates and discussions are, are really terrific. So I think I'm going to try to leave as much time for debate and discussion because I, I expect that, uh, that you'll find what I'm going to propose quite controversial. It's not a position that I come to easily. In fact, it's one I, I in many ways, I regret that I've come to. Uh, and and I, I'm interested in people's feedback. And, and let's have a conversation about it. Uh, I'm putting this out by way of uh, an argument about the prospects for uh, meaningful, effective climate change policy, uh, what it might take to get there, why we seem to be going nowhere at the moment, and please, if you disagree, after I finish, uh, let me know and let's have a, a good, heated, vigorous conversation and debate about it. Something that, as I say, I enjoy very much when I come here. Uh, I'm sorry that my voice is a little bit hoarse. Uh, I seem to have brought over uh, the, the residue of an infection from my two-year-old at home. But I hope you can hear me. I don't actually usually sound quite as sonorous as this. I, sound a bit like, like our former Prime Minister, Brian Mulroney, which I'm not sure I, I actually I like very much. But uh, let's make sure we can get this technology working. That does not seem to be it. Let's try it. Oops, wrong one. Here we go. <laughs> Goodbye. There we go. OK. So just a, uh, a little bit of personal background. I was uh, on this ship, which is Canada's most powerful icebreaker, the Louis Saint Laurent. Uh, this past summer, uh, this is actually probably around August the 6th or so. This is south of Victoria Island in the Northwest Passage. Uh, this is a, an area that in a decade or two ago would have almost certainly been choked with ice. Uh, I was up in a helicopter. This is a photograph as I'm coming back to the ship. We'd been out across this, a very broad strait. It's probably about 100 kilometers across. Uh, we'd taken a look at some of the landscape on one of the nearby shores and come back. There was no ice anywhere. Uh, and uh, when we got to Kugluktuk, uh, which was formerly known as Copper Mine on the sh shores of the Northwest Territory, uh, uh, a few, couple of days after this and, and took our plane to go home, the temperature was 17 degrees Celsius. The temperatures in the Arctic last, last winter were uh, between seven and nine degrees above normal temperatures in the Canadian part of the Arctic. It wasn't true for all of the Arctic, but the Canadian Arctic has had very, very warm temperatures recently. When you talk to people up there, you talk to natives, when you talk to uh, people who've worked on this ship in particular, this ship is now 30 years old, it's about to be replaced by a polar class icebreaker, it would be one of the most powerful in the world. Um, but uh, this is still, nonetheless, a very powerful icebreaker, and the captain has been in the Arctic for 20 years or so, and he says that they're just, there's a remarkable change. One of the things that he told me that I thought was quite interesting is that uh, <clears throat> this, this ship in uh, uh, a number of years ago, I think it was uh, 2004, went to the North Pole. It actually went with an American icebreaker. Turned out a, Soviet ice, a Russian icebreaker was already there. Uh, they didn't expect that to be the case. But uh, it went to the North Pole, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it was pretty well solid ice. Oh, wow, we do have a big crowd here. 
this must be the class. Is this the class? Yes. Oh, aren't you wonderful? Uh, this is a, uh, a course, the students from a course, master students, of course, on Ariel. It's environmental change and management, and I had a chance to sit in the other day for just one of the lectures, and I was really impressed by the questions, so it's marvelous that you'd come. So I'm just starting. You haven't missed anything. So one of the things that this, uh, the captain told me was that uh, uh, in, the, in the old days, when you were out in the thick pack ice in the Arctic, you didn't actually have to worry uh, about heavy weather because any uh, storms wouldn't create waves because uh, the sea ice prevented any significant movement in the, in the ocean water. Uh, and he says now there's so much open water, even in the, often in the middle of the Arctic basin, that you get these enormous surges and swells. And he says it's really quite remarkable that it's like watching, watching a, a, everything happening in slow motion as these surges come through the broken ice towards the ship. And it makes, of course, navigation and, and all the matters that you have to deal with as being, when you're a captain, much more difficult. So they notice changes, and the natives notice changes. They notice changes in the, uh, the flora and the fauna, uh, very uh, important changes to their livelihoods in terms of the availability of things like seals and polar bear. Uh, but the main reason I'm showing this photograph is because when I was, uh, when I was there, I was writing an article for the New York Times. I actually filed it from the ship. It was published about three weeks later. If you're interested in it, it's on my website, homerdixon.com. Uh, and I'm, in that article, I made the argument that I'm going to present today. Uh, and it's an argument about the uh, necessity of climate crisis to break through the gridlock that we are experiencing right at the moment in climate policy, globally and nationally. Well, where does this gridlock come from? And the gridlock, I should say, is I think everybody would acknowledge very substantial <clears throat> 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was signed. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, it said that uh, for the Annex I countries, 40-odd, 38 countries, going to have a, an average of 5% decrease in carbon output put compared to 1990 levels for those countries. By 2012, uh, we're actually 30% uh, above 1997 emissions globally right now. Uh, we're going not only in the wrong direction, but uh, full steam ahead in the wrong direction. Uh, and I think that there is a, uh, a sense, a palpable sense of despair in many communities, environmental communities, and even, I would say, among many climate negotiators about uh, the state of negotiations for an international climate regime. And there certainly is despair within a lot of countries like the United States about the prospect of getting any serious policy to reduce emissions. Well, why is that the case? Uh, we could uh, discuss this for a long time, um, but I'll identify uh, five reasons for resistance to change. They can be categorized in various ways. Uh, you'll have others, perhaps, but I think these are probably the most important. Cognitive reasons for resistance to change, emotional, economic, social, and political. I'll just go through them quickly. At the cognitive level, there are some, I think, quite reasonable questions about whether the brains that hominids developed in the plains of Africa are uh, well suited to the kinds of challenges that we're facing now. Uh, <clears throat> 
We don't, for instance, uh, deal very well with what you could call slow creep problems. We tend to respond, and this is part of my larger argument, we tend to respond to sharp sudden change, to crisis. We're often very good at that. But when change is incremental, it's remarkable how easily we adapt, and we don't even sometimes see that the change is happening. Uh, we tend to uh, uh, be sensitive to things that have happened recently in our environment or our circumstances. We, we tend, when we tr are interpreting what's going on around us, we tend to draw lessons from things that are most available to us in our memories. That's the availability bias. So for instance, I find it much more difficult to talk about climate change issues after we've had uh, a couple of, in Canada, a, a couple of uh, fairly cold winters. People say, oh, there's no climate change. It's freezing outside, you know. Uh, and, and that's the end of the story. So that's the availability bias problem. Um, Cognitive inertia, uh, this is, a, you might say, a psychological vested interest problem. Uh, people develop uh, uh, deep commitments to their ways of looking at the world. We all carry around uh, simple and sometimes less simple, sometimes quite complex theories of reality in our head. We spend a lot of time and energy creating those and being socialized into them through, the, th through our lives, and we're quite understandably fairly reluctant to change them radically. We might tinker a little bit here and there, but very few of us are prepared to make a significant shift. Uh, and if, if um, we believe certain things about the w way the world works and climate change policy suggests we should change those beliefs, we're going to be resistant to, to uh, that policy. So those are some of the issues at the cognitive level. At the emotional level, uh, um, a similar sort of problem, what you could call motivated bias. Uh, if we uh, uh, derive uh, significant benefits from, uh, say, uh, our position in the world, in a corporation, or in an institution that uh, will be hurt by or affected severely by the kinds of policies that are being proposed to deal with climate change, then we're going to tend to be resistant, psychologically resistant and emotionally resistant to those changes. Uh, this is just phenomenally powerful. But you, it, you can downplay the importance of motivated bias, but it is just remarkably powerful. Uh, uh, to the extent that a lot of folks, and we're all susceptible to this, let's not think we're good guys and they're bad guys, but a lot of folks in the uh, energy industries, the carbon energy industries, uh, will just will listen to the latest science and say, it's not true. You can, put, you can put the best stuff in front of them, and they'll just cross their arms and say, it's not true. I'm not going to believe it. That's where we are now in many cases. And that's, and I think, uh, it tied to the issue of motivated bias and identity defense, which are very closely related. Uh, people develop, similar to the way we develop sort of theories of reality, uh, we d develop theories about who we are and what our identity is within this reality. And, uh, uh, and, and identity issues are at the core of our self-understanding. And we're very, very reluctant to give up our perception of who we are, that we build very uh, diligently through the course of our lives. For instance, <clears throat> I mentioned in the New York Times article that there's some very interesting research recently talking about how uh, identity is connected to people's attitudes towards climate change. You might say, well, how can that be the case? For instance, if you, if you um, have, a, say, a more conservative ideological perspective that uh, 
um, emphasizes the importance of individualism and property rights uh, and enterprise, you will probably see yourself within the world as somebody who is very enterprising and, and committed to individual rights and an individual. And this, and this uh, it gives you a certain perspective on how to relate to others and how, how society should be built and structured. Uh, so it's a personal thing. It's not just an external ideology. It becomes personally related to your identity. Similarly, if you're, say, of a more liberal, as we would say in North America, or left-of-center persuasion, uh, you might think that um, uh, you might de-emphasize uh, individual rights and individualism, and you might emphasize more, a more communitarian ideology or philosophy, see yourself as essentially as an individual connected to other people, and that, in a sense, the community is the real entity and the individual is not so much the real entity. And that's part of your identity. Your community participation and membership is an essential part of your identity. And what ha seems to be happening in many cases is that uh, the conversation about climate change is now quite directly connected to deeper fears and understandings about identity. That what, what um, the, the way the conservatives or the right wing is interpreting <clears throat> much of the... Uh, advocacy of policy on, for climate from, <clears throat> from people who want to move ahead on this issue is that this is a left-wing plot to expropriate property and to expropriate their wealth, to take it away, to, re to reduce individual rights. It's, it's absolutely clear that's, that's the, uh, the source of much of the resistance. And, and it's so fervently believed the folks will sit there with their crossed arms because, because it affects themselves, their perception of themselves so profoundly, and who they are, what groups they associate with, the potential, uh, the potential for those groups to prosper uh, in the world, and themselves to prosper in the world. So it's very personally felt. It's hard to struggle against this stuff, but we need to understand what the obstacles are like if we're going to move forward. Uh, economic reasons for resistance to change, uh, this one's pretty straightforward, it, I think, uh, in, in very many cases. In fact, you could say our entire pricing system is not dealing with negative externalities effectively when it comes to environmental problems. Uh, energy, especially carbon-based energy, is woefully underpriced, uh, not just in North America, but around the world. Even people in Europe would be probably paying a lot for, more for it if we reasonably accurately internalize the external cost to future generations of the use of carbon-based energy. Uh, <clears throat> And as long as those prices are, uh, are so um, inaccurate, in a sense, not reflecting the real costs of using uh, goods and services that uh, have a high carbon energy content, uh, there's insufficient incentive in the economy to innovate and insufficient incentive to make the changes necessary to conserve, to develop new technologies, uh, to ch change behavioral patterns that are necessary if we're going to address this problem. So this is a, this is a problem of uh, bad price signals, the absence of internalizing external costs, which uh, has consequences at the level of individuals and the firm, uh, but is a fundamentally a larger institutional problem, a problem institutional design, our economic institutions for our societies. <laughs> Then we come to social reasons for resistance to change, and this echoes a lot of what I said in the first two. And this is uh, taking the issue of, in a sense, motivated bias and, 
and uh, showing that it can be an emergent property at the level of whole groups and whole societies. You can have industries uh, and very powerful groups that have a vested interest in the status quo, want to maintain and protect the status quo because it provides them with wealth and power and influence, and they uh, will do whatever it takes to make sure that things don't change. And this is not, again, I think, a, a world of good guys and bad guys, <laughs> depending on which vested interests you point to and which interests you point to more generally, we're all part of one of these groups. Uh, it just turns out that in the case of climate change, uh, some of the most powerful corporations in the world uh, are deeply resistant to doing anything about this problem. And not just hydrocarbon corporations, oil companies, coal companies and the like, but manufacturers of cars, for instance, of cars that burn gasoline. They're starting to come around. Uh, the, the power of motivated bias, again, is remarkable. If you look at, for instance, the reinsurance companies, also very big, very wealthy, very powerful, uh, they are really concerned about climate change and they take it much more seriously. I work with some of the people at Swiss Re and, uh, and they do because they can see it turning up in their balance sheets. They can see that there's a higher incidence of extreme events costing them a lot of money and uh, they see trend lines. They can extract that signal from the, from the noise and uh, they want to know what's going on. Uh, so they, they have an interest in a sense on the other side of the issue and they ultimately end up being much more amenable to some more aggressive climate change policy. Uh, I, I, if I were to pick one thing on this list, and you can't really because obviously they're all interrelated in the way I'm describing them, but if I were to pick one thing on the list, I'd say this is the big one. This is what's happening in the United States. These groups are phenomenally powerful. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to do this, but I think I have a little bit of time. And, and, and uh, just to give you an example, uh, two articles in the Monday issue of the International Herald Tribune. Um, uh, that were side by side. They look like they're completely discrete, unrelated pieces. The first one, activism of justice's wife raises judicial ethical issues. Some of you may have heard about this. This is about Virginia Thomas, who's the wife of Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court. Virginia Thomas is the head of uh, a nonprofit group called Liberty Central. That is a 501 3C corporation in the United States, which means it has charitable status. She gets a substantial salary from this organization. Uh, it can receive very, very large donations without having to report them publicly, so they're anonymous. Uh, so her salary is being paid by that. The ability to receive those donations at such large levels was largely established, the right to get that money was largely established by a ruling, a five to four ruling at the Supreme Court earlier this year, you probably heard about it, that said uh, that such anonymous donations were legal. And of course, uh, Justice Thomas was uh, in the five to four majority on that, uh, on that, on that, uh, in that ruling. Uh, you know, it's not, you don't have to be a, an arch neo-Marxist to be, to, to talk about um, the kind of interlocking business, corporate, and right-wing interests that now dominate in the United States. Uh, and express their political power through this kind of mechanism. And these interests go right into the Supreme Court of the United States. It's true in Canada, too. I mean, one of the reasons we don't get anywhere on tar sands and oil sands is because, because oil sands companies speak directly into cabinet, speak directly to the prime minister. Um, adjacent article, U.S.-China deadlock, deadlock. 
Dim's outlook for climate conference, talking about the upcoming COP16 in Cancun. COP16. We've been at this for 16 years. Well, you know, it's talking about the fact that, you know, there's a big dispute between the United States and China over climate that's producing deadlock in the, in the in conversations in advance of COP, COP16. And, uh, and the fundamental dispute is over whether is over verification versus cuts. The United States is saying, China, you need to allow us to set up a, uh, an international agency that will uh, verify, that will have the power to verify emissions of carbon dioxide. Uh, China regards as, that as, a, as an infringement on its sovereignty. <clears throat> and also says, and I think not unreasonably, that the reason the United States is making a big deal out of this is because they actually don't want to cut emissions because they actually realize, given current policy in the United States, that they can't cut emissions. If there were an agreement to cut emissions and they tried to take it back to Congress, it would be blocked. It would be blocked by uh, a very powerful interest groups that uh, are mobilized in part through the political campaigning of groups like Liberty Central. So, we have a problem. And it's accentuated in our political system in part by the fact that, at the very most, people look only four years into the future. Right? Uh, in Canada, it's sometimes a week into the future, given that we have a minority government. I don't know what you would regard your time horizon in, in the UK. I understand you're coming up to a big budget announcement, so I imagine that that's sort of where the time horizon stops right at the moment. But, but uh, it's hard for our institutions to, I mean, I, I'm kind of understating this, to deal with issues that extend a decade into the future, let alone half a century or a century. And in fact, climate change in many respects stretches centuries into the future. We have to be thinking about the interests of people, not only next generation, but multiple generations from now. Uh, so, so the incentives, again, are all wrong. The incentives are biased towards the present and not towards protecting the future. Uh, and that's really hard when you're dealing with a problem that's going to exact most of its costs far in the future. So um, my conclusion from this kind of analysis <coughs> is that actually, uh, we're not going to like this, but progress is probably impossible on climate change policy in the current situation. Uh, and, and in fact, I would say that if, if, since we're talking about profound change in our institutions and our technologies and our behaviors required to deal with climate change, really quite profound change, in the way our cities are designed, the kinds of technologies we use, the pricing in our markets, uh, what we regard as the good life, what we regard as uh, uh, you know, reasonable occupations, uh, and, and also uh, entertainment opportunities. So many things are going to change. The historical evidence, I would suggest, that that kind of profound change in societies only comes in times of crisis. And so, ergo, we're probably not going to see any effect of climate change until there's a climate crisis. Until, until the evidence coming to us from the climate, and I'm thinking here in a sort of Thomas Kuhnian sense, right? We've got, we've got a, a very rigid, uh, calcified institutional and belief system that's extremely resistant to change. And the evidence has to be so overwhelming that we've got a problem. Uh, that it starts to break apart. And really what you're doing, and this is what happened with the financial crisis, is that crisis produces evidence that discredits the arguments or the theory of reality uh, and the positions being put forward by those vested interests. You actually need, you need hard, empirical, indisputable, palpable evidence from 
from a reality that's going awry to uh, overturn these interest groups and discredit them. Uh, and, and I would say that's the historical truth, that, that there's just abundant historical evidence we can look at. We can look at the, the recent financial crisis as most a clear example. Um, there has been a considerable amount of regulatory activity that would have been impossible in the absence of that financial crisis. I don't think it's probably effective to prevent another financial crisis, um, in large part because probably, given all the Keynesian intervention that took place when the crisis occurred, uh, it wasn't uh, so bad that it actually caused a, a, a deep discrediting of things like, of outfits like Standard & Poor's and Moody's and rating agencies, uh, who the, the rules for which have not really changed very much. Um, uh, but nonetheless, the financial crisis did provide an opening, an opportunity for some pretty substantial regulatory reforms. Uh, and I would think that we'd need something at least as severe to produce substantial advances on climate policy. So uh, the argument then is that, uh, uh, let's face it, let's just accept its reality that this is so much resistance. And, and now has warped the debate to such a deep extent so that folks w think it's legitimate to attack scientists, legitimate to sit in an audience with their arms crossed and simply deny the science. That uh, we're, we're probably not going to see much progress, if any, until there's a climate shock of some kind. That doesn't mean that there's nothing to do in the meantime. And that's the second part of my argument. This is what we call the, I call the Plan Z argument. Um, uh, I work with Americans on this, so <laughs> humor me. Plan Z, called Plan Z. Somehow Plan Z sounds a bit sexier because it rhymes with Plan B and everybody's talking about Plan a, B, but I actually think we need to go to the end of the alphabet because it's the last plan. It's the plan that we implement in a climate emergency. And it's the plan that says, okay, at this point of emergency, what are we going to do to try to make sure that things turn out that have the highest likelihood of turning out best as possible? And that not, may not be very good, but there probably will still be a range of choices uh, when there's a climate emergency or a climate shock of some kind. Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to use Plan Z or Plan Z in Europe because some of you, how many, uh, how many people know here, I'm curious, uh, how that uh, label was used uh, several decades ago, a number of decades ago, uh, it, it, by somebody we don't really regard very highly. Does anybody know? Just, just a couple? Yeah? Doesn't it have anything to do with concentration? No, no. That's interesting. I, it's, it, I, I would have thought that in Europe this knowledge would be much wider spread. It was the, uh, it was the name that, that Hitler and his regime applied to German rearmament, especially uh, uh, the uh, naval rearmament that occurred in the 1930s. Uh, so you can Wikipedia to find that out, which I did when I was starting to do this work, and I thought, well, how far is that in the past? Can we sort of ignore it at this point? And, and when the New York Times article came out, I, somebody sent a comment to that effect, but it, it seems like, in a sense, the memory trace is degraded enough that we can, use, we can start using Plan Z again to apply to something else. Um, although the, the commentator who did send me this remark pointed out that it's quite likely that right-wing groups, if this becomes a prominent plan and something that people are actually doing and nations are actually engaged in, right-wing groups will, will, will quickly make the association between this plan and what they call eco-fascism, right? 
that, that this is, again, a, a, an effort by powerful states to expropriate rights and property. Okay. Expropriate property and, and abridge rights. Um, okay, let, let me go on and talk about what I think this climate, uh, some, a climate shock might look like uh, and then wrap up with a couple of comments about uh, how, what a Plan Z would look like and also what some obvious objections might be to this whole line of argument. Um, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this because I think people here are pretty familiar. When I was here 18 months ago and I lis listened to Nick Stern's uh, commentary over in the Sheld Sheldonian, uh, wonderful presentation, and I was really, really impressed by the level of knowledge of this issue in the Oxford community and even apparently among uh, the general public who were attending because there were a lot of members of the general public who were asking questions that evening, who were attending that evening. Uh, so I won't spend a huge amount of time uh, going through the details because I think your background knowledge is probably pretty good. Um, this is from uh, NASA, NASA data going back to 1880, uh, coming up to, this is 2009, the last black dot is 2009. So each black dot represents one year estimated average surface temperature for the planet. Uh, the green lines are error bars, it gets shorter as we get closer to the present because the data get better. The uh, red line is a five-year moving average. As you probably know, you need to look at the moving average because there's a lot of chaos on a year-to-year -year basis in the climate system, mainly because of ENSO events, El Nino Southern Oscillation. And it's interesting, again, you know, in terms of picking your data, uh, folks who don't want to believe that there's a climate change problem will tend to look at this cluster right at the end here. And they'll, in particular, start with the data point in 1998 and say, well, if you start in 1998, there's been no warming since then, or even perhaps uh, the trend line is down. Uh, 2010 is going to be up here. So it's going to be harder to make that argument. But the average of land ocean, what does that land mean? Land ocean. What does that mean exactly? It means you take, uh, you take all of the stations around the world that are producing uh, temperature measurements, and you, you, uh, you uh, extract any potential influence from, for instance, heat island effects in urban areas, and then you average across them to, to get the average temperature of the planet, which is around, uh, what is it? Uh, this is zero. Zero actually represents what is it? People know here, 52 degrees Celsius or something like that. Uh, not 52. 52 degrees Fahrenheit. It's uh, what is it? What is it? Uh, 20 degrees Celsius, something like that. I, I can't remember exactly. It's mainly land-based. No, it's world. It's world. They take a lot of measurements on the oceans now from ships. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Ships and then uh, individual uh, temperature measuring buoys and things like that. Um, uh, there are a lot, especially in recent years, there are, I mean, it's not, a, you're right in the sense, you're right in the sense that probably there, there is a, people will know, some people here will know this better than I, but there is a substantial bias towards land measurement because there are more stations on land. Um, but there are a lot in the oceans now. There are some patches that are not well observed. Um, but the, the folks who are doing this kind of analysis, for instance, a crew in East Anglia, uh, do their very best to compensate for the, uh, the imbalance in availability of data. Let's take some questions at the end. If you want to ask, uh, ask technical questions, I'm happy to zip back to any slide you might have a question about. So, uh, looking at, the, uh, at, at where climate modelers think we're going to go, and this is the infamous, but it shouldn't be infamous, 
man at all hockey stick graph. Uh, the, the debate being whether this black line is what you saw on the previous slide, uh, a warming since the industrial area era, since where, when we've had direct measurements of the Earth's surface temperature. The debate being whether the top of this black line, which is where we are right now, is higher or lower than the medieval warming period. <coughs> Honestly, I don't think it's an interesting debate because my sense is we will be indisputably warmer than the medieval warming period within a, uh, not too long a period of time. What's really important, though, is where we're going here relative to where we've been. Regardless of, of how you interpret the proxy data, it's not going to expand this range too much here. These are tree ring data and things like that. And, and uh, we're going to a place within a very short time that is radically different from the environment, the climate regime in which human civilization, modern human civilization developed. Uh, and when we laid down our irrigation systems, our urban settlement patterns, our transportation networks, etc. And all of this was established during this period of time, most of it in the most recent period of climate, and we're going to a very different place. That, that would suggest that there are going to be some very severe adaptation issues. Even if there aren't sharp, sudden changes in the climate, that the rate of change itself is going to be enormously demanding for our societies. It's not actually the temperature, whatever temperature we're going to ultimately end up at, that's going to be, I think, the major problem. It's the transition to that point when we're trying to adjust our societies, our infrastructures, our agricultural systems. And agriculture turns out to be particularly important and my guess is that the kind of shock that climate will uh, initially induce in global systems that really gets people's attention will be in the global food system. And that's the argument I'm going to make over the next few slides. So this is a, an article that appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in late 2009. Uh, the title is Nonlinear Temperature Effects Indicate Severe Damage to U.S. Crop Yields Under Climate Change. And uh, I'm not going to go into a... Uh, a lot of time provided interpreting what you're seeing here. This is temperature from the, across the bottom from 0 to 40 degrees Celsius. And this is a, uh, a scale of yield, crop yields, in this case for corn. And all I want you to note is that when you get above about 28 degrees, 29 degrees Celsius, you get a sharp decline in yields. In fact, if you interpret the research of these uh, scientists, they say that uh, a, a, a day of temperatures at 40 degrees for, for a corn crop in the United States, where temperatures have previously been 29 degrees, so you go for one day from 29 to 40 degrees, and then you flip back to 29 degrees, that one day will reduce yields by 7%, just one day. It turns out that most of the crops that are critical to human survival, uh, row grain crops, Corn, rice, wheat, barley, oats uh, are all extremely susceptible to short periods of high temperature. When you hear these arguments about how climate change and global warming will, will increase agricultural production, increasingly scientists are starting to realize that they've left something out that's very important. Yes, there's a fertilizer effect from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that boosts yields to a certain extent. But a lot of those experiments that have identified higher yields with the fertilization effect have been done in controlled environments where adequate water is provided, where temperatures don't go too high, and things like that. In the real world, where you're going to get sharp, extreme changes, quite possibly in precipitation, droughts, floods, things like that, because you've got an energized hydrological cycle, much more energy in the hydrological cycle because of global warming. And in the real world, where you're likely to get heat 
extreme heat events for periods of time, uh, agricultural production uh, is, is going, could be severely affected. This appears to be what happened in Russia this past summer. So another study, this one, appearing earlier in 2009, Historical Warnings of Future Food Insecurity with Unprecedented Seasonal Heat, uh, looks out through this century at the likelihood of very high temperatures in agricultural regions. Uh, uh, this is for the 2040 to 2060 period. I'll just take uh, a, a few areas in North America. Uh, this has um, particular uh, meaning implications for folks in Canada because uh, California, Arizona, and Florida provide a significant portion of the food to people in Canada. You see that they're orange. Well, you interpret that this way. Uh, according to this modeling, which is using not uh, the, any of the more pessimistic estimates of carbon emissions going out this century, but the A1B, which is generally considered to be kind of a business-as-usual estimate, and our emissions are already way above A1B. Um, but according to models using the A1B emission scenario, by 2040 to 2060, there's a 70 to 90 percent chance that any given summer in those regions in the 2040 to 2060 period will be warmer than any, any summer to date. Uh, in the historical record between 1900 and 2006. So a 70 to 90 percent chance that any given summer between 2040 and 2060 will be warmer than any summer experienced in those regions between 1900 and 2006. Uh, you might say, hmm, well, doesn't look great, but maybe manageable if we're smart. Some concerns over here where about half the world's population lives. Let's go out, let's go out and look towards the end of the century 2080 to 2100, which is about the end of the lives of my children. My, uh, my wife and I have uh, a little boy, five years old, and a little girl, two years old. It's amazing how that focuses your mind on, on periods of time, decades hence. So now we're looking at wide swaths of the planet where 90 to 100% of the summers between 2080 and 2100 will be warmer than any summer uh, experienced in those regions historically to date between 1900 and 2006. Um, and this is a planet with a population of at least nine billion, nine and a half billion perhaps, so uh, a good uh, 25 to 30 percent higher than it is right now. And, and this paper and the previous one, this, the, the author said, we have a potential food calamity emerging here. And we're not investing the dollars in the research that we need to do to identify the crops that are going to be resistant, in particular to heat shock. Um, the previous paper, I didn't mention this, but the previous paper said that if we, if we uh, uh, follow an A2 emissions trajectory, which is pessimistic, but not the most pessimistic, and until the economic crisis, human emissions of carbon dioxide were above, far above even the A2 emissions trajectory. But if we follow an A2 emissions trajectory out through the century, they estimated that for the United States, food production would decline between 30 and 80%, depending on the crop. Okay. Now, this is in a world where we have a lot more people to feed, and most, uh, most food experts assert that we will need to double our, our, our total food output on the planet by 2050 because of population growth and because of changes in diets. Well, that's the broader story about food. Just more specifically, very quickly, how could this manifest itself 
soon? How could we have a, a food problem soon? You can tell a lot of stories, and, and stories are stories. Uh, they're speculative. This is sort of scenario development. Um, but this one, I think, I, 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 I told it to quite a few people, and it does seem to have some, some uh, traction with people. This is in the Arctic. Uh, this is a photograph of the Arctic, a, a microwave satellite photograph of the Arctic Basin, 2008, March 2008. It's at the point of maximum ice extent that year. Uh, the dark gray is single-year sea ice, so it's thin and potentially could melt quite easily the following year. This light gray or white here is multi-year sea ice, sort of piled up against northern Greenland and the northern part of the Canadian archipelago. And... Uh, and, and uh, 10 or 15 years ago, this multi-year sea ice would have extended over most of, this, most of the basin, and it's gone now. In fact, now this area is thinner than it was and smaller than it was. So big things are happening in the Arctic. Uh, you're probably familiar with these data. This is 1,900 to 2,100, 0 to 10 million square kilometers of ice in the Arctic basin. These are the IPCC model estimates of the decline in sea ice extent. Uh, and each year is measured uh, in the middle of September, which is the point of lowest extent of ice, uh, maximum melting, and then it starts to recover after that in, in the annual cycle. And, uh, and here are, and this is the error barb, essentially, I think that's one standard deviation around, around the estimate. And then, uh, and then we have the observations. This is up to 2008, at the end of that line. 2009 is a little bit higher, 2010 was down lower again. If you look at this horizontal distance here, it says that we're somewhere, depending on whether you take the light blue or the black line, between 20 and 50 years ahead of model projections for Arctic sea ice disappearance. Things are happening very fast in the Arctic. This is really astonishing and scaring climate scientists. You know about that. But when you ask them what it will do, what difference it makes for the world, they say, well, we really don't know. We think it might be significant because you're taking an area the area above the Arctic Circle represents 9% of the surface area of the Northern Hemisphere, and you're changing it for at least a portion of the year from a highly reflective surface to a highly absorptive surface, because white surface is much more reflective than dark ocean. And we, but we don't really know what the implications of that will be. One of their concerns, though, is that uh, it could affect the Hadley cell circulation, which is schematically represented here. This cell here you can think of as sort of like a money belt around the planet. Uh, just above the equator, and it's circulating air and energy northwards. And each one of these cells helps carry energy all the way up to the pole. The polar cell operates in significant part because it's cold here over the ice, and so the air is dense and it sinks. If that ice melts, the polar cell could weaken or break up, and that would affect this interface here between the polar cell and the feral cell. And it's along that interface that uh, the jet streams travel. <coughs> Excuse me. And I know you have a weather channel here, like we do in North America, and if you know the weather, you watch it regularly, like lots of people do, you know that the jet streams are really important for storm track patterns, precipitation patterns, far beyond uh, just the, the area under the jet streams. It can affect climate patterns across the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. And one of the things that uh, shifting in the jet streams might affect is the East Asian monsoon. Um, and by the way, there's, there's some pretty strong evidence that this polar cell is weakening and that we're seeing a migration of jet streams northwards and a weakening of jet, jet, jet streams. Some of the crazy weather that we've seen in recent years 
has been quite specifically related to uh, weird behavior in jet streams. So let's look at China and foods. Uh, getting very specific, China requires around 450 million tons of grain each year, uh, but world grain trade is only 200 million tons. Let's say over a succession of years, China experiences something like Russia did, has a very serious uh, drought problem or heat shock problem, has a decline in its food production from 100% to just 80%, still able to produce 80% of its food. But after it exhausts its reserves in a few years, it has to go out onto the, onto the international grain market to fill that 20%, which is 100 million tons. It would absorb half the grain on world markets, and that would have a sub very substantial, a severe shock effect on world grain markets and would affect uh, prices in uh, every grocery store and food market on the planet. Is this a concern? Uh, well, there's already evidence that the East Asian monsoon is weakening. 65 to 2005, mean wind speed, windy days, pretty obvious decline there. And notice that uh, these observations match model predictions by Chinese researchers for greenhouse gas-driven disruption. Why is that important? Well, because the East Asian monsoon, probably a lot of you know, comes from this direction. And when it's weaker, it tends to drop more of its water in the southern part of the country and less of its water up here. And we know that we've seen a dramatic increase in flooding in this part of the country over the years. There's the evidence. This indicates higher precipitation in the Yangtze Basin. And we've seen uh, the appearance of uh, repeated drought, especially in the North China Plain, which is a triangle here surrounding Beijing, which is China's principal wheat-growing region. In many of those areas in the North China Plain, uh, farmers are having to go up to 200 meters underground to get uh, irrigation water uh, because there's not sufficient rain. So you can tell a story where, uh, in the relatively near term, events in the Arctic start to affect uh, food production in a critical region far away, and because of a tightly connected or tightly coupled global food system, which is really quite brittle, as we saw in the summer of 2008, uh, uh, that impact in a local region, say China, could uh, ramify across the planet and affect everybody. And that might actually get people's attention. So the suggestion here is that crisis can create opportunity uh, for change, you probably heard Paul Romer's famous expression that was picked up by um, uh, Barack Obama's recently departed chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who said a, a crisis is, never let a good crisis go to waste, I think was the way he, he put it. Well, I think that is an argument that's been around for a long time. You've probably heard it many times before. I, if I'm adding anything to it at all, it's that uh, we need to plan now for what we're going to do then, if we're going to take advantage of the opportunity a crisis provides. And this is based on what you might call a, a, an ontology of social change, a fairly uh, simple idea, but that's informed by a deeper, complex systems understanding of societies. And it suggests that societies uh, evolve uh, through branching space-time and uh, the branches occur most significantly at times of shock or crisis. And at those moments, there are alternative pathways that the society can follow. Uh, there's a great deal of path dependence in the system. So 
uh, if we follow this pathway and end out here and we realize we don't like it very much and we want to be over here or over here, it's kind of too late. Uh, we've, we're already deeply committed with institutional changes, behavioral changes, political changes, and you can't just reverse the clock. History matters and history determines where you are. So there's a lot of path dependence in the system. That's the bad news. The good news is that each one of these shocks provides uh, a loosening of the system, a moment of what I call contingency. Uh, there's flexibility that appears in the system because some of those structural interests we were talking about before are discredited and you can and potentially move things in different directions at that point. Uh, people are scared, they're angry, they're looking for answers. Critically, they're looking for answers. If you want to divide society, societies in general into two groups uh, in those circumstances, you've got extremists and non-extremists. Extremists know what the answers are. They don't listen to anybody. It's a good sort of general litmus test. Uh, and, uh, but the thing about extremist groups is that they are uh, already probably mobilized, networked together, have resources set aside, and are ready to go. And know who the enemy is. And it's usually a group over there that needs to be attacked and perhaps destroyed. Uh, um, non-extremists, in, invariably in these crisis situations, they're sitting around that's saying, oh dear, this is really bad, what do we do? You know, they're entirely atomized and, and they, aren't, they don't have much social capital and they don't even have a clear understanding of what's going on. What I'm suggesting is that we need to work a lot of that stuff out ahead of time. If we want to, if we want to have a chance of moving things in a positive direction when there are shocks like this happening, then uh, you know, moving ourselves, say, down this path rather than this path in a humane direction, uh, we need to be as prepared as possible in advance. Uh, and, and that's where we get to plan Z, Z, or whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, I could have a lot of things here, and the research project that I'm starting now, the International Research Project, will try to elaborate exactly what this means. This is stuff that you do ahead of time, not necessarily stuff that you do at the time of the crisis. If you wait till the crisis happens, it's probably too late. Um, and we can talk about what might be added. Uh, developing scenarios, I think it's very helpful if we have uh, a wide range of ideas about where we might be going and what kinds of crises might occur and what would be, uh, what kind of opportunities and threats might develop at those moments of crisis or climate shock. Um, it's very unlikely that any one of those scenarios will be exactly what happens. Uh, but it's, it's quite possible that if we do the job well, that some combination of a couple or two or three scenarios will, will uh, capture most of whatever situation we find ourselves in. And that could be very useful. And then we need to identify uh, robust responses. By robust, I mean responses we can identify ahead of time. Uh, things that we can do that would apply a lot ac across as many of those crisis scenarios as possible. That's a technical definition of robustness. So that, uh, and rather than, than having a completely different set of plans for each one of the scenarios, we try to identify things that would be useful to do across as many of the scenarios as possible. Either ahead of time or at the time of the crisis, but at least we know we need to do them. I don't know a better word than fungible, but the idea here is that we want resources that can be moved around in the system and that aren't defined by as, as, as are specified in their utility to specific scenarios. Uh, now, setting aside is a big issue because it means that there's a present cost. If you're putting resources aside, it means they're not available now. And, and that's a debate, that's an issue. It may not even be possible. 
But at the very least, what we can do is say, for this set of possible futures, uh, we will need these kinds of resources. So at the very least, you can go out and make sure you know where they are, as much of that particular kind of, it might be a particular human capital, might be a particular kind of training, uh, where they are in, in your society. And here's where we get, I think, ultimately much more controversial, but I think it's really important. The problem we have is a political problem. It's a knockdown, drag out, bare knuckles political fight, okay? With powerful groups who don't want to change. We have to accept that for the time being. What, what we, we need to recognize in, is that it, when the, a shock happens in this, and, and the social and political and discursive structures start to loosen and there's opportunity to broaden the debate and broaden the possibility for action, <clears throat> that that's going to be a political moment. And that what happens at that point will largely depend on who, who can mobilize the most political power to support one policy direction or path versus another. In really crude terms, who's in the streets? And who's, is it, is it going to be the extremist groups or is it going to be the non-extremist groups? And, what, and if the non-extremist groups are in the streets, what are they going to be advocating? It'd be a good thing for us to think about that now. Right? And how? And how are we going to get there? What are they saying? Okay, we need to do this, Mr. Political Leader or Ms. Political Leader. We need to do this, 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 and this. And don't pay attention to those other guys because they could destroy our society. Right? But that's, that's something that we can have a conversation about now. This is about building capacity, networks, and social capital for political mobilization. So, last slide. Um, obvious objections. And these are big ones, okay? Now, I'm not saying this is a great idea because I'm not sure it is a great idea, this whole thing I'm suggesting, uh, but I'm sort of driven to it by the logic of the situation that we're in. Uh, and, and, and these are serious objections. Climate shock, when it happens, may be too late. We might have, at that point, already uh, locked in profound damage to ecosystems and to societies. We might have even, so there might be lags that are insuperable in the system because it happens too late. Uh, it might also, um, it might also, a climate shock might actually flip the climate system into another state from which we can't get it back. There might be a reorganization of the climate in some way, changing currents and weather patterns and things in a permanent way. And we know it's happened in the past and uh, that there's what it, technically you call hysteresis in the system. We can't return it to the status quo ante. Uh, and that is a real concern. Uh, to a certain extent, we have to be lucky, okay? We were lucky with the ozone hole. If you were going to choose a place to have an, a serious incident of ozone depletion, to really focus people's minds, right? Uh, but not do a huge amount of damage, let's do it over the Antarctic, right? Uh, wow, 90% of the ozone just disappeared over the Antarctic. Yikes, let's do something. It was an infinitely easier problem than the carbon problem because, you know, you had six major producers and stuff like that. But, but uh, we were really lucky in terms of the shock that occurred to focus people's attention. We're going to have to be a bit lucky with the climate shock. It's going to have to be big enough and soon enough to mobilize people effectively. Uh, but not so big that it debilitates our society so much or radicalizes them so much that they can't respond, okay? And that is to fate or to God or to whoever you want to 
you know, you put your, uh, uh, your faith in. Um, plan Z obviously creates moral hazard problem and a lot of people are going to say, wow, okay, so we don't have to do anything. And in fact, we can keep pumping carbon into the atmosphere, we'll just worry about it when a, carbon, when a climate crisis comes. Uh, so it's a bit like geoengineering, especially if Plan Z, and I didn't mention it, involves conversations about geoengineering, emergency reactions, perhaps to cool the poles. Uh, you can imagine the, the potential moral hazard problem it could generate in, in a sense, letting the bad guys, in which case we're all bad guys because we all produce carbon off the hook. Um, crisis is, uh, and some people, and I think this is the weakest of the arguments, but I heard this the other day at a conference in Canada, uh, crisis is already happening. Well, there's already, already crisis and it's not mobilizing anybody. And my answer is, no, there's no crisis yet. We haven't even begun to see the kind of disruption that climate change is going to cause in human economic and social technological systems. Uh, and it's going, to be, it's going to become bigger, it's going to be punctuated and severe. Uh, and and it, the question is really whether it's going to happen out towards the end of this century or it's going to happen sooner. And over that, we, we don't have much control and we don't actually have much, much knowledge about when those non-linearities in the systems, in these tightly coupled systems, will happen. We aren't seeing anything remotely close to the kind of disruptions we're ultimately going to see. Uh, I, I just, in conclusion, I just say that uh, this, I get decidedly mixed reactions to this idea, okay? Uh, the New York Times article received an enormous response. It, got, it went viral and it, it, it got a lot of interesting comments from folks. Uh, um, there was some people wrote to me with these kinds of concerns. At the conference I was at recently in Canada, it, the conference was uh, populated principally by uh, what we call the international climate negotiation elite. And uh, this idea doesn't go across well at all. Okay? Because it actually says, and, and I hate to say it, it says that much of what they're engaged in is kind of epiphenomenal. It actually doesn't matter very much. In fact, it could actually be doing us a lot of harm because it distracts attention from, uh, it, it, allows, it allows politicians, to be more specific, it allows politicians back in their home countries to say, we're doing something. It's happening in that place called Cancun. Uh, we'll take care of this, don't worry which is just an excuse for business as usual. Uh, and, uh, and, and I can understand why if you've spent 20 or 30 years of your life desperately trying to deal with this problem by building an international regime that you would be really, really resistant to this idea. Uh, and and, and I, I sympathize, but that doesn't encourage me to change my logic. So I'm very interested in any comments you might have. And uh, let's begin the debate. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Tom.